Welcome to the Acme Conversations podcast, where we explore the world of the moving image and its connections to politics, society, culture, and art. This is a recording of a live event, and it may reference visual material. You can view this on our YouTube channel. Good evening, everybody. My name's Sophie Lieberman. I'm the Director of Public Education and Industry Programs here at ACME. As we begin this evening, I'd like to acknowledge that we meet on Aboriginal land um, the, um, and acknowledge the tra traditional owners and custodians, um, the Wiradjuri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and future. Um, I have a tiny bit of housekeeping before I hand you over. If for some reason you need to leave this evening, please don't leave through that door. It's on an airlock and it's really difficult to get out of. So <laughs> we'd ask you to just come around this way and we'll be able to let you out. Don't feel embarrassed about walking in front of other people. I promise you, you'll feel more embarrassed if you try and open that door. <laughs> um, this evening, we'll have the panel discussion for about three quarters of an hour, and there'll be a chance for you to um, ask questions um, and make uh, and have some engagement with, with the panel. Um, and before I leave you and hand over to Alex and the panel, just a short um, kind of moment to say we're very excited to be celebrating Wonderland as part of the ACME Conversations this evening. Slightly nervous that the curator has joined us this evening as well, but she's mostly here incognito. Um, and this has actually been born out of a publication which is sitting here, which we've done um, in partnership with Thames and Hudson. If you haven't already purchased it, I suggest that you do. And if you haven't been to the exhibition, um, please make sure that you go down and have a look. I am biased, but it is a pretty extraordinary piece of work. And it's allowed us to do things like this evening. So it's yielding many, many benefits for us. Um, next week, we have a, another of our conversations in the series. Uh, slight diversion this time. Um, we're co-presenting with Free Play a session on the pleasure of pixels. But we'd also ask you, if you are a diehard Alice fan, to join us again on June the 5th. So I will quickly introduce Alex and hand over. Alex is a film critic who's written five books on cult, horror and exploitation cinema. She was an editor at Senses of Cinema for three years and during her tenure she co-edited the collection to accompany the ACME exhibition. Alex, welcome. Thank you. Over to you. Thank you, Sophie. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for joining us tonight. With me, I have two of the wonderful, wonderful, wonderful contributors to, I'm, going, I'm just going to keep doing this all night, <laughs> to this lovely book that you can purchase with your hard-earned money. You won't regret it. It's a beautiful book. <laughs> I'm not going to stop. That is going to keep going. That is what we call a motif. That is a recurring motif. <laughs> or a sales pitch, you can decide which one. Enough, enough. With me are these wonderful people. We have Dr. Michelle Smith and Dr. Dan Golding. Dr. Michelle J. Smith, or Michelle J, oh, is her street name? There's too many Michelle Smiths. There's the disgraced <laughs> swimmer, there's the woman who had the satanic ritual abuse experience. So I need the J. I read that. I need the J so you can It's your J. Yeah, it's my J. Yeah. <laughs> Michelle J. Smith. Yeah. Huh? Like Michael J. Fox. <laughs> 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 Michelle J. Smith-Fox yep. is a senior lecturer at Monash University. 
One of her primary research interests is girlhood, particularly in the Victorian period. She is the author of Empire in British Girls Literature, Imperial Girls, 1880 to 1915 by Palgrave, 2011, and co-authored the book uh, Colonial Girlhood in Literature, Culture and History, 1840 to 1950, also through Palgrave and a book called Girls' School Stories, 1749 to 1929, but through Routledge. That's Girls' School Stories, not Girls' School Stories. I believe that there's an S. There's more than one. Right. (laughs) Michelle regularly also writes on gender and children's literature in the media, and I believe I've seen you on what used to be Darren Hinch's show. I remember your hair. You you did. You want Darren Hinch. It was an interesting moment. Yeah, he hand, he picked me and wrote to me and said, I want you to come on and talk about It's because you're amazing. Was that why? It must be. Was he nice? He, he is, he, look, I've got to say, I've spoken to him a few times about girls' culture, and he's way more progressive on those issues than you might think. So, yeah, go, Darren. Right. <laughs> you come to an Alice in Wonderland event, you get some Darren Hinch. That's what we're here for, a bit of variety. Keep it spicy. Keep it spicy. All right, we're just starting. Now we've got to talk about this guy. This is Dan Golding. Doctor. You've hard-earned title there. I apologise, Dan. Oh, no. Dr. Dan Golding <laughs> is a lecturer in media and communications at Swinburne University. He is also a writer, composer and co-author of Game Changers from Minecraft to Misogyny, the fight for the future of video games with Lena Div- Le- Get it right, Alex. <laughs> Lena Van Deventer. His new book, Star Wars After Lucas, will be published by the University of Minnesota Press in early 2019. And from July this year, he'll be co-hosting the TV series What Is Music for the ABC, iView and Triple J. Wow. <laughs> Seriously? I'm, those last two lines have never been in a bio th- before. That's... This is the f- their debut. So I'm, <laughs> I'm very wow. pleased by both of those. Yeah. <laughs> is, is Darren Hinch going to be on your show? <laughs> oh, look, he wasn't going to be. But after that, I think we should get him. He's a friend to women. I got yeah. his email address. Okay. So. Great. <laughs> You're watching media networking yeah. in place, you people. This is all happening. All right, I've got a clicky thing. It's just, it's. I'm going to keep saying every time something kind of messy happens, we'll just say curiouser and curiouser yeah, yeah. in a whimsical way, and you'll all. So it's so random and sparky. No, no, <laughs> curiouser. All right, you guys are here. You've seen the website. You know what we're going to be talking about. We are looking at Alice across time and across different media, with a particular eye to what that tells us about girlhood, femininity, and technology. What I love about this exhibition, um, and you can too if you haven't seen it yet, uh, by the book, uh, (laughs) um, is how the story of Alice in Wonderland so perfectly allows us to map the history of film technology. Um, In a way, it almost seems like a random fit, but when you think it through, I guess um, we were saying before, Sophie, that that technology is often gendered as a very kind of masculine sphere, and to think through the technology of film history through through a girl's story is actually something quite refreshing and radical in its own way. Um, And I think that's one of the most exciting things about this exhibition, and also it has lots of cool stuff. (laughs) That too. So these kind of panels, we've been on your side, we've been in the audience, we know that it can sometimes get a little bit like this, um, and we, we don't want that to happen. So if, if it does start getting, there's clips, this is what I'm saying to you, we've got clips, many, many stupid clips. So if you're feeling like this, just hang on, we've got video entertainment. You can, you can run out, you can have a wee, you can have a cough, you can, curiouser and curiouser. All right, let's just start off. Um, Here's something different. Let's start off a little, um, a little laid back. 
because mm. <laughs> it's been so formal oh, so it's been far. so structured <laughs> so, yeah. so completely not off the rails already I want to ask you guys about your first memories of Alice in Wonderland when did you first discover this mm. story was it film book dress up costume in your case Michelle yes, tell me about yes. Alice so all I know is that there's photographic evidence of me at a primary school fete in Langwarren in 1984 wearing a Queen of Hearts costume so I know that I knew of Alice and I think this is why this visual culture emphasis of this exhibition is so important is that we often know her without having read the book I know for sure I never read the full book until I was at university and thought I'm a literature student I must read this important work of literature but honestly I only knew it through these cultural reverberations through like maybe the Disney film, maybe golden books so Mm -hmm. kind of for me it's that kind of just general osmosis where Alice absorbs into you somehow but not through Lewis Carroll. Mm. It's a a beautiful photo, it's on my, I posted it on Twitter today it's on the Acme Twitter feed, you can check out Michelle's impressive hexagonal um, patchwork, A-line skirt it's amazing. (laughs) But I love that I went with the kind of villain rather than Alice (laughs) precursor of things to come Hello Um, Dr Golding well, when I knew that you were going to ask this question, I, I, I thought about it long and hard, and I couldn't come up with anything. So I thought about making something up, but I decided against it because I think a that. With you here. Yeah, I know. Well, I so I mean, there's no clear moment where I can pinpoint and say this is where I encountered Alice. And I think, as you were saying, Michelle, that it, that's so illustrative of Alice that for me just being aware of Alice was being aware of pop culture Mm -hmm. and kind of a shared culture and I actually think that's much more interesting well I don't know maybe a funny story would have been better but it tells us I think something about Alice I think the first time I remember understanding Alice as a mass pop cultural phenomenon like this Mm. sort of amorphous aesthetic vibe beyond story um, was when the video came out. I was very, very young for Tom Petty's Hmm. Don't Come Around Here No More. I was way too young to find that not terrifying. (laughs) Um, And it's still, that was my sort of first, I couldn't because he's got the beautiful long blonde hair, but he was the Mad Hatter and I had this lovely kind of gender bent moment. You know what, it was was Hmm. extraordinary. But my first run in with the book, I, I brought a prop. I'll just hold this up. <laughs> you guys can't see this, but some of you at the front might be able to. This is a copy. This was my dad's. This is my dad's bookshelf. This is a copy of Alice in Wonderland in Latin. The entire book. The entire book. It's all the John Tenniel. You can't see. I don't know why I'm holding it up. You guys can see that. Look at that. Um, and it's got chapters like Stagnum Lacrimarum, which I think is one of the three witches from Suspiria. The whole book is in Latin. The, the, the poems are all in Latin. Jabberwocky's in Latin. So I remember being young and hearing, oh, there's this famous nonsense story called Alice, you know, Alice in Wonderland. And I thought this was what nonsense was. I didn't know that Latin was a dead language. Nobody tells kids that. I thought that's what people meant when they said Alice was nonsense. And so people are like, oh, Jabberwocky's a famous nonsense poem. I'm like, dude, the whole thing's insane. <laughs> this is just like endless Lauren Ipsum. It's garbage. And I reckon I was about 12 or 13 before. Like, I'd seen movies of Alice in Wonderland, and I thought it was just all made up. I didn't realise that Lewis Carroll... Mm. I didn't know there was a story. I didn't know what Latin was. I was a late bloomer. We didn't know a lot about Latin in the Western suburbs. Um, 
And sure enough, I realised that this was, you know, it, it, it occurred to me later that this was actually not what Alice was. And when I read the story, I thought it made perfect sense. It was, kind of came as a relief. So this idea of Alice being this sort of whimsical, nonsensical thing, I kind of worked backwards from that. Mm. But enough about me. Let's look at some of these films. Start with the early silent ones. Um, or perhaps I'll just call them early movies early cinema for, yeah. for more technically sound <laughs> reasons that we'll get on to. Um, in the exhibition, we have the beautiful um, magic lantern slides. Um, Alice was always a part of moving image culture, and we have an entire exhibition to tell you guys that. Um, I think it's an understatement to say that even from the earliest days of cinema, it was really a match made in heaven. There were three very significant early Alice adaptations, Cecil Hepworth in 1903, Edwin S. Porter's in 1910, and W.W. W. Young's in 1915. The British film critic Pamela Hutchinson specialises in early cinema and has recently just written a beautiful book for the BFI series on uh, the Louise Brooks silent movie, early movie, um, Pandora's Box. Um, it's just gorgeous. And Pamela wrote a great chapter for this book here um, on these early films. And she quotes Cecil Hepworth here, and it's such a wonderful quote, who says, every situation was dealt with all the accuracy at our command and with reverent fidelity to Tennille's famous drawings. Now, I love this question of fidelity, of reverent fidelity. And we've all been binge-watching Alice in the lead up to this. And one of the things that really struck me is this notion of reverent fidelity. It, it, it sort of becomes looser across time. Mm. These earlier versions start off quite strictly sticking to the story. And then things just get a little weirder as we kind of travel further down, dare I say it, the rabbit hole. I'm just going <laughs> to keep pushing this. This is why you're here. This is what you paid for. So I guess I'm going to open this up to you guys now. Um, Michelle, I guess you in particular in terms of girlhood, what features are the most striking? I'm going to read this out so I don't screw it up. <laughs> what features are the most striking in these earliest Alice's in her shift to the screen, both in terms of the general iconography that you've yeah. spoken about, um, but specifically, I think, in terms of, of girlhood and femininity and, and how have they endured? Like, are there traces of Alice as we know her today that yeah. we can see in, in the Alice of yore? Yeah, I mean, what, what's interesting in terms of that fidelity is that Alice is the one thing that isn't very um, faithful to the book in these early films. Um, she's seven in the book. She's a tiny little thing. And um, most of these films go with much older actresses. I mean, there's probably practical reasons behind that, but it also shifts this dynamic because girlhood, I guess, is this sort of liminal space in between, not, you know, not quite child, not quite adult, and this transitional moment, and that kind of suits this fantasy space. But um, often the movement in the earlier films is toward much older actresses. Often they've got brown hair, as in this Hepworth one, and, and the kind of look of the clothing kind of doesn't really match um, those kind of iconic, um, you know, image we have of the blue or the yellow dress. So um, in a way, that Alice herself kind of becomes quite different um, in the film in terms of her age. But the one thing that I guess is kind of consistent is that she isn't really a well-rounded character who we kind of know very well, like, like Dorothy, um, you know, in The Wizard of Oz. She's almost people call her like a blank slate because you can almost make her anything. We don't know a lot about what her what what she thinks or whatever. She that's probably why we've ended up at this point of this exhibition because we can shift her into kind of anything we want to. So um, here she she largely just follows what they call the comic primness of Alice in the books that she reacts um, you know with surprise to the stupid things that are going on. Um, she um, 
kind of is there as the foil to the stupidity, right? Because she wants to reinforce what a good Victorian girl should be doing. But we don't really know her that well. And I think that's what is present in these earlier films, whereas more recent films try to flesh out what's her motivation, what she's trying to do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, for me, these early films, and I mean, actually, all of the films that we're going to be talking about, um, the one thing that strikes me, having seen them as a whole, and I kind of want to begin with this because of that, is that the narrative is kind of modular, actually. Mm. In the, It's sort of like a series of events that you can sort of put in several different orders. And you can sort of take one of these blocks out, like one of these encounters out, or you can sort of put it a little later. Or, um, I think the 1915 one doesn't have the Mad Hatter at all, mm. um, which is quite key to a lot of other versions. Yes. But you know, because of the way the narrative functions as a series of encounters, you can yep. kind of do that. Um, And that's what is endlessly interesting about how these different versions articulate the same story or the same set of encounters and actually, well, maybe I'll save my comments on the games until much later, but, you know, you can see how that kind of works as a series of encounters as well. Um, I think that also feeds into cross-cultural interpretations of Alice and also... um, These, like Michelle, like you were saying, that you know we can kind of plant our own stories in them um, mm. when we get to uh, Jan Svankmeyer and his adaptation and the political kind of mm. movements happening in there. That, that there's this highly adaptable text, I guess. Absolutely. And Dan, one thing I, um, mm. I I'm going to pick myself up on calling these silent films. Yeah. I, I knew you were going to. <laughs> I knew you were going to. You, you were giving me the eye mm. when mm. I said that. Can you? Explain to everybody why you were judging me so harshly. Can you feel in why? Yeah. So, so we call these pre-late 20s films silent um, for historical reasons, but film was never silent, um, ever, and um, was always usually accompanied by a musician, um, sometimes accompanied by uh, a record that would be timed to coincide. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, you know, of course, we had wax cylinders, um, phonographs, um, and sometimes even by uh, a special effects person who would often stand behind the screen and, and time, you know, like firing a starter's pistol when there's gunshots on the screen and stuff like that. That would be upsetting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I mean, uh, actually, uh, Wings, which is uh, an absolutely Beautiful terrific film, film um, yeah, uh, had, uh, it's a, um, what, the last great silent film uh, and uh, is about World War One dogfighting and they have, you know, like propellers behind the screen and stuff like that um, and, I mean, engines, you know, to, to make an incredible cacophony of sounds and there's like sheet music for when this sound should occur um, and so it really developed by by the end of the silent era but so these films as well even in even in 1903 with the, the first would have been accompanied by something so calling them a silent film is misleading to some degree. But you know what this reminds me of? And I'm so glad that you have this particular shot this here. particularly terrifying image that I yeah. have. Yeah. Well, exactly. I mean, if we're talking about Alice as kind of representative of different moments in film history and film technology and, I mean, political history and society history, I mean, film is pretty young in 1903. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had, you know, the Lumiere brothers debuting film as a technology, if, if that's the story we want to go with, sort of, you know, 18, late 18, 90s, 95, 96, around then. And um, this shot in particular reminds me so much of the arrival of the train at a station, which is, you know, the film that... That kind of perspective and... Yeah. So for those of you who don't know the myth, this is meant to be one of the first films that is shown to the public ever. 
and um, it's just a train arriving at a station and um, the audience is said to have freaked out when the train arrives because they thought it was going to burst through the screen and, and run them over. <laughs> Which I think probably tells us more about how we view naive historical audiences rather than what actually happened. Which, <laughs> You know, sort of not important to these retellings, but the the way the train comes towards the camera is very much like this on this diagonal diagonal motion, and this shot here is is terrifying in the context of this early film, uh, where you know she's finally set upon by the the evil queen's minions, mm. and I mean to me this is this is mimicking that same moment of like Alice's foes are going to burst through the screen in the same sort of motion. and Just playing with space, yeah. not just on and that flat plane, but that, that multi-correctional. Yeah, yeah. We are going to look at some... Oh. Here we go. We're going to turn now to animated Alice's. Now, we're going to get to Walt Disney again shortly. Um, but I think from the outset, it's worth mentioning that Disney himself made 57 one-reel Alice comedies between 1923 and 1927. So our buddy Walt, he was on it really early. But when we were looking at um, these sort of early animated Alice's, I just could not let the opportunity slide to talk about this one, um, Betty in Blunderland from 1934. It's just, just one of my favourite Alice's. Um, I'm not sure if you guys are up on your Betty Boop knowledge, but she she was quite progressive. Um, a lot of these cartoons don't hold up across the board in their, terms of their politics. Their racial representation isn't necessarily spot on in a from a contemporary perspective. Um, but Betty herself was, you know, she was like a modern girl. She was a flapper. She was a single young woman trying to survive in the city. She was quite sort of progressive, you know, a young girl in a man's world. And she was based on this woman here, Helen Kane. Um, and I, I've got this great quote from this wonderful issue of Photoplay. I have to read this to you. Um, April 1932. Helen Kane was the cartoonist's inspiration for Betty. The first time a real-life character has been used for the popular jumping comics. Mm -hmm. I just love... I want you all now to... Whenever anybody mentions cartoons, you say, no, no, no. Popular jumping comics. <laughs> Let's all together watch a popular <laughs> jumping comic called Betty in Blunderland. Thank you. 
So I think you could safely say that we're moving on from reverent fidelity with Mary <laughs> and Bondaland. Um, I, I love that so much. I, I, I love her little boopy voice. I, I love it. I love it. But I think we have that really beautiful example in that cartoon, Michelle, of your this idea of, of Alice as a blank slate mm-hmm. that we can project other things onto. Yeah, like um, you can take this sexy figure and put her into Wonderland, and we know instantly who that's meant to be, and we don't kind of skip a beat. And it's and it's fine that it gets a bit more boopalicious than Alice-alicious. I don't even know if Alice-alicious. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. You're here for the creation of language. It's beautiful. Uh, well, Carol would approve. Right? <laughs> Rapture stay. Exactly. <laughs> so we're going to have a look now at some of the more, um, I guess, major um, earlier Alice's. Um, um, Betty doesn't make it into our catalogue. There is a wonderful piece online at Senses of Cinema about Betty in Blunderland that I can definitely recommend having a look at if you're interested in looking at that further. We're going to look at um, two earlier films called, both called Alice in Wonderland. Norman McLeod's, uh, Norman Z. McLeod, like Michael J. Fox, um, from 1933, and of course the Walt Disney Company version from 1951. Um, these, importantly, weren't the only earlier versions, um, I think I need to give a shout out to the great 1949 version by Lou Boonin. Is that how he, hey, I've had a surreptitious knot from the curator, I'm, I'm in. Um, <laughs> um, it's beautiful, if, it's, it's on YouTube, if you can chase this down, uh, the 1941 Alice, it's just a lot of the artwork for the exhibition comes from that particular version. It's so contemporary in its artwork, and my God, so many hoop skirts. It's just a hoop skirt bonanza, if that's your thing. It's gorgeous. But we're gonna focus, I think, to start with on the Norman Z. MacLeod version, which was a live action version that incorporated animation, real animals, um, and some really beautiful moments in this film. And as you can see here, some genuinely terrifying. (laughs) The Mock Turtle is a, a very early film appearance from Cary Grant. And you hear him speak, and he does his beautiful soup song, and it's Cary Grant. It's yeah. Cary bloody Grant. <laughs> but obviously, that like he wasn't capital C, capital. You know, he wasn't Cary Grant then. He was just some dude. They just put him in a. Obviously, they had like a tortoise costume and uh, like a horse costume and a lobster costume. <laughs> I, I think it's terrifying. So this has really stayed with me. We have a much deeper reflection of this particular film in this great book um, by Joanne Di Mattia, um, who looks at this film closely up but guys what what's your take on this particular aside from Cary Grant being terrifying how did you how did you go with this one well it's not I mean it's not just Cary Grant as well it's uh, Gary Cooper is the white knight uh, he and he was capital letters Gary Cooper at this point so that's interesting so no he's a relatively minor role and you don't see his face um, and uh, Harold Arlen who was in Wings actually is someone uh, so it's this really interesting sort of combination of 
fairly large stars with um, minor unseen roles. I mean, one of the things that I love about this is it does that classic 30s adaptation technique of opening on the book opening, mm. like the credits are the pages yes. being turned. And it's this, like, I think this question of fidelity again, like, look, it's so, you know, true to the source material, we're just filming the book. Mm. Um, and, you know, and, and, and I mean, like, David Lean does that with Oliver Twist yep. as well. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's like Disney with Cinderella. It's like mm. this, this is, yeah, but this does mm. depart a bit from the book in terms of that it has this opening substantial segment where Alice is with her governess, which, which mm. isn't in the book, um, and she's not wanting to do anything she's supposed to do. She's not wanting to do her lessons. She's not wanting to read. Um, she's um, kind of playing with things she's not supposed to play with, her father's chess set, so she's touching some of the, you know, the objects who will appear kind of in the, in the, in the fantasy world of, of Wonderland. But it's quite interesting, though, because I think this is one of the earlier attempts to kind of give her more of a rebellious streak because quite often Alice is trying to do the right thing by Victorian norms within the book, you know, like she's trying to recite the poem, she's trying to do what she's been taught at school, but here, you know, in the framing narrative outside, um, you know, Wonderland, she's she's being naughty. So I, I find that an interesting element and probably comes through like in something like Tim Burton as well, where there's this attempt to go, okay, well, Carol doesn't give her much of a reasoning or a purpose, but here, let's give her a motivation for, for kind of going against the grain of what she's supposed to be. I find that really interesting I've never thought of this um, before in relation to this particular film, but the script for this film, the screenplay was written by Joseph L. Mankiewicz, mm. who won Oscars for um, A Letter to Three Wives, but most famously, I think, um, that, that most of us would know is All About Eve, which are, again, in, in reflection to that opening governess sequence. These are films about naughty girls, <laughs> you know, girls that don't behave, girls that are trying to fit in and not fit in at exactly the same time. That tension of behaving... Like a, like, a, like a proper young lady but also being a woman out of control you know these sort of tensions I think are at play if we look at authorship in a different way we can see that through through very early you know this sort of earlier Mankiewicz screenplay yeah. it's interesting that those tensions are in play for, for sure I mean this is the thing that I think about with a lot of these early Alice's as well is that I mean this is a period of massive change about how women can be yeah. seen mm -hmm. in public or even domestic lives I mean um, there's a great cartoon from Life magazine uh, in the 20s where it, it, it's captioned 30 years of progress and on one side it's got um, uh, an illustration of a Gibson girl which is Charles Dana Gibson who is um, um, you know, a newspaper illustrator, cartoonist and she, this is this, this depiction of womanhood where she's sort of forward and you know knows what she wants but is still a bit demure a bit sort of haughty I suppose and then on the other side it's got a cartoon of a flapper and so that sort of like progress like you know it's very much calling into question how women should be yeah. and to sort of contrast this um, Alice from the book with the way that you know mm. Betty Boop can take up the same mm. you know who is a flapper right can take up the same role and uh, this sort of rebelliousness is such a continuing theme, I mean, through this period, but through all else. Yeah, yep. there's been enough distance, I think, through the Victorian period after 70 years to kind of start to insert these little moments of her not being compliant. Yeah. And, and yeah. There is a sense of reclamation as much as subversion, and I think that that's a theme mm. that we'll see throughout the films as we keep talking. Mm. Um, 
We'll move perhaps onto the Disney, which I think for so many of us mm. is yeah. when we think of Alice, that's what we see. Yeah. You know, that mm. it's it's that Alice. I think she's so iconic. But it's almost like all Alices were born retrospectively almost. All the Alices before that we still think of through this lens of that that really quite singular, striking, beautiful image. Mm. But the film was a, a not a big success. I mean, I, I, my understanding is that Disney, Walt Disney had... Um, it was passionate about making an Alice in Wonderland film and he tried to do a feature previously, it didn't happen, turned to it, uh, I think in the 1930s, turned to it in the 40s and, and this one came. Um, but I don't think it was the success that they expected it to be at the time. It was only later that it sort of really gained in reputation and became probably one of the most loved Disney films mm. of all time, which is really saying something. But certainly its iconography, I think, is just... Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, it's, it's, it's Alpha, Alpha yeah. Alice. Um, <laughs> How, do you, how did you guys go revisiting that particular Alice? It's it's funny. Mm. I find I, was, I, was, I remember the songs. I don't remember how funny it is. Yeah, it's a funny movie. Well, the, I mean, the songs actually. Um, I mean, this is kind of a tangent, but the the main theme became a jazz standard, um, and is like reinterpreted by like Gil Evans and Dave Brubeck and all these people yeah. in the fifties. It's like it's that's it's a jazz standard now, which is interesting, kind of a sidebar. To that. Uh, again, that kind of regeneration. And yeah. Of course, this particular Alice does have a. Uh, a kind of psychedelic regeneration in the yeah. yes, but we'll get to that shortly. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I don't know. I mean, this is the central one, isn't it? Like, it's, I, it's I like taped this off the TV in my childhood and like oh. repeatedly re- replayed it. Did so, you pause the ads out? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I was pretty good at that. Pretty good at that. Although there was the odd slip up, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, for, for me, like this is, it's fairly. You know, in some ways, it, it, it's this standard model of Alice that we find in the Carol book, where she's trying to accord with with what she's supposed to do, right? So she's still this younger age. I think we see this return instead of these older heroines, like in in this world, she she kind of is comparatively powerless, and she does, um, you know, she recites the poems. Like that's a fairly kind of strong theme in in this film, which she doesn't necessarily do in all the others, and that's one element Carol emphasizes and is very central to the book of how children are made to learn these things that they don't really understand. Like the, the poems that she recites in the films are parodies of real Victorian poems that kids had to learn. So the nonsensical lyrics or the nonsensical verses kind of mirror the fact that like kids don't honestly understand the stuff that they're, they're saying and being forced to say. And so I, I like that it returns that element of, you know, critiquing, you know, what children are forced to do. You make me feel good that Carol would probably be okay with the fact that I don't know any Latin. <laughs> yeah, I... Like, I Go, Carol. <laughs> it's being forced. It's being forced. Yep. If, you, if you willingly go to it, that's fine. But, yeah, like, in, in that way, I think it's, it is quite close to the book in that it's maintaining that her seriousness in, in facing kind of these things, yet trying to be a good girl, yet not quite knowing how to kind of deal with this craziness. Um, and, and I think this shifts as time goes on to be about more about adults themselves as the cause of this kind of chaos. Do adults actually know what they're doing? <laughs> I think I think there is like um, still some you know conservatism about the fact that it's an American company, yes. you know, with American voices for a lot of the for characters. English. For English, and he was yeah. quite conscious, I believe, of making it very British. You yeah, know, he wanted to be a proper English film. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I, I, I mean, I think still today there's that kind of, you know, fractiousness between people who sort of view this as an, a, an American appropriation of British mm. culture. I think um, so. It's 
Yeah, it's interesting in that sense that it's become like the uh, Alice text. Yep. I actually saw a review for um, the Tim Burton one that sort of um, said that it was a remake of the Disney version. I think just assuming that the Disney version was the original Alice. Oh, wow. Full stop. <laughs> um, so, we're, yeah. Film critics, we're wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> we so often read things that aren't Wikipedia. This is great. <laughs> what, what, what brilliant people we are. Dan, you have written a mm. remarkable chapter in this book um, on Bud Pollard's 1931, Alice in Wonderland. Thank you for yeah. writing it. It's it was nice. my pleasure. It's a good read. It's Thank good you. Read. You can read it. Um, let's have a look at a clip of that and talk a little bit more about it. if I've kept her waiting. <laughs> It's the first synchronized sound, Alice. So the first one with, you know, sound as we know it today, I guess. Uh, and it's like, you'd probably call it a deep cut of the Alice oeuvre. Um, I think it's not one of the, the well-known Alice films. Before when I, when I went about writing the chapter, I think probably like less than a thousand words have been written on this film in an academic context previous to this. So it was kind of a challenge to piece together any information at all about this film. And a lot of it came from sort of like local history, you know, documents and, and, and websites. So this was shot in New Jersey rather than Hollywood. Um, which was kind of a second, like a satellite film production um, uh, base for America at the time. So it was sort of like I think in in one of in the New York Times review they sort of say, isn't it a pity that Alice's first sound film had to be made in in New Jersey <laughs> rather than rather than the the better people over in Hollywood? Um, and as you can probably tell from that sequence, it's not we're not really talking about professional actors here. Um, there's some suspicion that this was like a local stage play. Um, and Bud Pollard, who's the director of this film, was just the most amazing, like, hack. <laughs> he, like, he just, I mean, he made, uh, during this period, he made, like, um, like, like sex scandal films, um, uh, like what they called a race movie at the time, which was sort of, you know, any American movie that didn't, didn't feature Anglo people, I suppose. Um, <laughs> Uh, an Italian language film produced in America uh, and my personal favourite which is he shot an adaptation of The Sign of Four, the Arthur Conan Doyle um, book didn't release it then recut it 12 years later 
um, with a new voiceover as an anti-drinking like tract called John the Drunkard. And this is the same film. So he's like, just, he's, you know, an absolute sort of master of making do. So that's what gives it sort of credence that maybe this was just a local play, that they sort of thought, well, we've got the costumes and sound technology is this new fad for, for cinema. Uh, everybody loves it. Um, it's also coming up to the centenary of, um, of, of um, Charles Dodgson's birth. Um, so um, they, I think they probably thought, here's an opportunity to make a quick buck. We'll film this, we'll distribute it. Um, apparently it was sent round to schools, kind of in an effort to make it like an educational text, I suppose. Um, and it's deeply weird, I think, actually, mm. as a film. I think that's a good description. Yeah. <laughs> I, how did you go with this? Michelle, had you seen it before? No, I hadn't. No, don't hope. thank me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I found this one, one a bit of a struggle. To, to I, be I like this is Ruth Gilbert. I actually, mm. I mean, she's obviously not a seven-year-old girl. Yes. But she reminds me a little bit like she's like, like me. She's a cheap drunk. <laughs> she plays it like a cheap drunk. Yeah. Like, uh, and, know, and like she's trying for an English accent, but like it's Brooklyn all the way. Like that's <laughs> what it is. I'm, I'm such a. Th I have to show you guys my notes. This is my notes. It's funny when the king falls on his butt. <laughs> I've written five books and a PhD. It's funny when the king falls on his butt. That's cutting criticism. That's what they paid for. The deep, I know, deep I insights. Know. The, the yeah. deep dives. <laughs> the critical deep all right, we've, it's, it's gotten weird. We've mentioned our psychedelic Alice's. I think we should just, just do it. I think we should go in. Let's have a look at Curious Alice. On a time, in a famous story, a girl named Alice got very curious about a little white rabbit who passed by. She followed it and soon found herself falling down a very deep hole into a strange place called Wonderland. I'm late. I'm late. Hey, wait. I'm late. Nowadays, there are still girls and boys whose curiosity leads them to strange places. What a curious fall. I can't tell where this is going. Oh, I'm late. I'm late. I'm too late. Where'd he go? And where am I? A medicine cabinet? What's it doing here? Aspirin? Thinks mommy gives me when I'm sick. Prescriptions. Mommy has to get those from a doctor. I wonder whose they are. Oh! Cigarettes? I know they're not good for you. Curious. Liquor? A liquor cabinet? That's not good for kids either. But, but, what? Oh! Maybe cigarettes and alcohol are like medicine. I didn't ever think of that. They're all things that make you feel different, that change you. Curiouser and curiouser. What kind of place is this? Oh, wow. <laughs> Mommy or the doctor wouldn't have anything to do with this. This stuff just looks like it could hurt you. 
<laughs> now we're talking. <laughs> we know why you're here. So we have Curious Alice from 1971. We also have a, another film called Curi uh, Alice in Acid Land from 1969. Um, during this period, I think we have this real, um, there's a real kind of regeneration, a kind of cult reclamation, I think, of the mm. Disney Alice in particular. Alice becomes um, a symbol of the counterculture. Um, if you think about Jefferson Airplane's White Rabbit, Grace Slick talking often about reading Alice when she was, you know, having Alice read to her as a child and having a kind of cosmic awakening and then the paisley comes and we all know the, the lava lamps. So there's no turning back. <laughs> um, there's obviously like a lot of, still even now, I think there's some ongoing debate about Charles Dodgson's own drug use. You know, it's almost like a kind of urban legend that he was fond of an opioid or two. Mm. Is that, yeah, looking, there's a bit of rumour. I mean, he was... I, I'm not going yeah. to... He seems like a pretty straight-laced Oxford don. He did have to take orders um, to enter Christchurch College. He wasn't <laughs> a fully ordained minister, but, um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure how wild he was, but, you know, was a Victorian it's, era, that fond there, of opium. It permeates. Yeah. It's, yeah. Why not? Mm. Yeah, tough day at work. Yeah, he's, <laughs> you know, he's not a priest. <laughs> um, there is a, in this wonderful book, we have a great essay on the psychedelic Alice films by a woman called Kat Ellinger, a superb critic who is the editor of Diabolic magazine. Um, and I just want to read out this great quote that she uses to wrap up this chapter. She says, in retrospect, it's easy to see why Carol's original text became so relevant to 60s drug culture, especially when Alice is so exquisitely rendered as curious Alice or as sexually liberated as Alice in Acidland's leading lady. Alice was changed forever, and her psychedelic alter ego was born. But as she said in the book, it's no use going back to yesterday because I was a different person then. If she wasn't before, then the 60s certainly saw to it that she was. And I love this because I think it's... Alice changed after this. I mean, Alice, as we've seen already, Alice was always sort of morphing and evolving and changing, but I think we have this quite radical break um, in the iconography and the meaning, the cultural meaning of Alice um, during this particular period. How did you guys go with these movies? <laughs> I just want to know how Curious Alice and Alice in Acidland, which is also great. Um, in it's a little a deeply... more explicit, right? Yes, yeah, Because this is for school children, um, yeah. this Curious Alice. But the other one, like, don't watch it at work, basically. There's for a lot sure. of breasts yeah. in that yeah. one. Yeah. <laughs> it is very yeah. booby. It's very it booby. Very booby. Very yeah. booby. Yeah. But, I mean, like, I just want to know how either of them were intended as, like, an anti-drug mm. film. <laughs> because, like... <laughs> It looks great. It looks enticing. Yeah. Um, this looks terrific. Yeah, I mean, like infomercials. Yeah, really. yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I like. I mean, I'm sort of joking, but I'm sort of not. In that, like, I I really think both of them totally failed to nail the like. I can give you a you serious answer, but I kind yeah. of like leaving it enigmatic. Go. Yeah. No. So, go for it. Um, just randomly, um, I I I know some stuff about um these kind of training films from this particular period, sort of from the 50s to the 70s. There's mm. a wonderful a man called Rick Ellinger who does amazing archival work of this kind of material. Mm. Um, we see in these kinds of films, um, sort of anti-drug films, but also in road safety films, mm. um, we have a lot of low-budget indie filmmakers getting legitimate funding. Yeah. Um, George Romero started off making safety films. So it's, it's, it's a legitimate funding to make 
um, to make movies, basically. So people would get their hands on the equipment and they would learn how to make movies and they would get money and they would get these legitimate, legitimate jobs. But of course, what they ended up making were exploitation films. Mm. Um, if you watch a lot of the early road safety films, they are straight out exploitation movies. They, <laughs> there was no scientific, and films like this as well, there's no research that has been done that showed, oh, people stopped taking acid after they saw Curious Alice. <laughs> Curious Acid. Curious <laughs> Alice. Like, like you said, Dan, I mean, mm. if anything, yeah. they're pro. And yeah. the, you know, the road safety ads had no influence at all on the road safety <laughs> statistics. They just gave some kind of oddball filmmakers access to filmmaking equipment to make yeah. some truly weird movies. So mm. I'm going off topic there. But I do think no, it is really interesting because we end up with these wonderful artifacts. Yeah. But even the intent doesn't matter, right? Like, wasn't there something like Disney kind of wanted to get Alice in Wonderland off the college circuit because when college students who were kind of maybe imbibing the marijuana warned against like they or, or LSD or whatever like that, that became a touchstone and it's like this is a use we never projected <laughs> no, no, no. This, is, this is not what we intended it's like um, yeah this, those resonances are there to take right there, there's all these ways mm-hmm. into the text and the genie's out of what the you bottle intend, to mix right? up my, <laughs> my metaphors yeah <laughs> All right, we're going to stick with out there stuff, I think, um, and move for, I guess, more experimental or less mainstream ways that Alice has been imagined in cinema and uh, focusing in particular, but certainly not solely on European art film. I had to include this. I'm not sure if you guys know this movie, Jean-Luc Godard's Weekend. Um, It would be a stretch to call this film an Alice adaptation, but it's it's a very much a down the rabbit hole, you know, we have with quotes like this, it's a kind of down the rabbit hole movie, but it's it's really subverted in a really kind of ugly, snide and funny and sour way, just with these awful French bourgeoisie. It's it's a great film and it's a really interesting one to think through, these references to Alice in Wonderland that Goddard has very consciously left in there. But there's um, very broad scope, I think, to the way that Alice has been reimagined through European art cinema in particular. Um, shout out to a couple of films. Um, Valerie and Her Week of Wonders, the Jorls film, a Czech film from 1970. It's absolutely beautiful. I believe that's playing, am I correct, that that's playing in Alice's Everywhere? I think it is. Do see it if you can. It's a really beautiful movie. Um, and one of my favourite Italian giallo films that we have an essay on um, in the book by Sam Dean. Um, called The Perfume of the Lady in Black from 1974 by Francesco Borelli. Um, is, it's not a Dario Argento Gialli. It's a very different kind of film, but it really reimagines Alice in a very dark, but kind of beautiful way, almost like a David Lynchian. I think you would call it the closest that we have to a David Lynch Alice in yeah. many senses. Um, so what I thought I'd do here to kind of get us thinking through some of this stuff is talk a little bit about David Bordwell's definition of art cinema as being in opposition to classical Hollywood narration. For Bordwell, art cinema is marked by an indifference to the cause and effect logic of mainstream cinema, and it's marked by open endings and episodic structures, as well as a focus on internalised and subjective emotional and psychological states. Now, if I move here, these are other films um, that either appear in the book, um, and Celine and Julie Go Boating is also playing... um, in the Alice is Everywhere. In fact, I think I have a date for that. That's the 26th of May. And if you haven't seen Celine and Julie Go Boating, um, please do. This would be a wonderful context to see it, especially if you know Desperately Seeking Susan, um, which it riffs, which riffs on, on that film quite heavily. Um, using that Bordwell quote, I guess, as a launch pad, how do we think through these more sort of, you know, highbrow Alices, you know, that use Alice as a kind of a jumping off point into these strange worlds. Yeah, I mean, I think the the cause and effect point is 
so key because you see as the more mainstream Alice's, especially like the recent Tim Burton one, tries to insert this cause and effect narrative where there's a, there's a problem, a singular problem to solve and a singular villain to sort of defeat. And, and sort of you see the queen take that role in the more like mainstream Hollywood, straightforward narrative films, but in the more artistic, you know, the, 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 um, the European art cinema style films. I mean, they embrace that episodic narrative of Alice and that sort that of... That modular know, aspect yeah, that you were talking about. Yeah, absolutely, where it's just sort of a series of encounters. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think, you know, what you were saying before about a lot of these films not being straightforward adaptations or just sort of influenced by, I mean, I think that's also a, a reflection of the way that Alice has become so... Um, definitive in popular culture of this kind of like I guess what you call like a picaresque narrative where it's like picaresque is like this like an evildoer so Alice is obviously not an evildoer but an evildoer sort of stumbling through a series of things um, and seeing what happens to them it's almost like a road movie in a sense um, or a road narrative really it's not just not just cinema but yeah, yeah, and so yeah, so like you know, when it when that character is a woman or a girl, it is just so immediately reminiscent of Alice that we can't. I think we today it's impossible to look at this kind of like young girl stumbling through a series of strange events as anything other than Alice influence. We have this wonderful series of films playing at Acme alongside the exhibition, which is Alice's is, Alice is everywhere. Yeah, she is. Yeah. She's yeah. in all of us. <laughs> <laughs> How'd you go with these? Fancy schmancy yeah, highbrow ones, Michelle. Well, well, um, look, I haven't seen a lot of these, but but like I think I agree with Dan that that, that one thing about the Alice narrative, and, and it's common with girl fantasy narratives, is that they don't actually change. Nothing happens as a result. Like most fantastic quests with boys or male heroines, they conquer the thing, they do the thing, they return heroic. Everything's changed. But m- more fantasies about girls are more internal. They're more mm. dreamscapes, like Alice. Um, you know. Um, Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, nothing changes. So I think this lends itself to this art genre more because it's an internal journey. Um, is it a dream? Is it not a dream? Is it something imagined? Um, and it's more about exploring the notions of the self, you know, rather than I will do this amazing thing and save everybody. And, and so that's why I think some of the more frustrating versions, you know, like perhaps the way Tim Burton's movie tries to insert like that kind of heroic narrative, you know, loses that aspect of how we can mould her into um, just something more about um, kind of internal reflection and um, you know no definitive narrative but kind of a way to explore kind of different dreamscape visions speaking of dreamscape that's a perfect segue oh, good good I, you know, that, I'm setting you up I'm here in, to handle straight to, into yeah. Jan Svankmeyer um, <laughs> for those of you who haven't seen Jan Svankmeyer the Czech animator's Alice um, there's I think my favourite part of this whole exhibition is the the props from his Alice, they're just, it's such an amazing film and he's such an amazing filmmaker. Um, That that film will be playing, I believe. Um, Please do see it on the big screen if you can and not on the clapped out video that I saw it on the first time. Um, We're going to watch a little clip from that now and then have a little chat about it.
fart, said Alice to herself. <laughs> just, even if you haven't seen the film, I think just based on that clip, it's just, it's, it's like yeah. almost the anti-Disney in every sense, but it's an equally beautiful, beautiful film. Smekme's Alice for me is a really key example um, of, you know those, those films where it, you, you can watch them if you know nothing about them. You, you don't need to know who made it, you don't need to know the context that it was set, you don't need to know who funded it, and it's an amazing film experience. But if you do know those things, it's an even more amazing experience. This is a really, and I, I, what I love about this film is that it's a super political movie, but if you don't know the context, it's still a really, you're not excluded from the experience, it's still a really amazing ride. Um, Svenkmeyer was a really politically, or is a really kind of politically motivated guy. This is a hugely political film. He's, there's a really lengthy sequence in this film, the, the courtroom scene. Um, and it's a real interrogation um, or reflection, I guess, of um, what happened to artists in, in the Czech Republic after the Prague summer. Uh, sorry, the Prague spring. Oh, holy summer. The Prague spring of 1968. Um, but, you know, people were really, um, the ruling communist regime, you know, really kind of interrogated and tortured people. It was not a good time. And, and he's made this really amazing film about that experience through Alice in Wonderland. And part of this world, we see it at the very start of the film because we see Alice, you know, it starts off again with Alice sitting near the water, throwing rocks into the water. But of course, the reality is that she's sitting in her room throwing pebbles into a, tea, into a broken teacup. Mm -hmm. You know, this is, not a, this is not a beautiful, idyllic world that this particular Alice lives in. Um, but guys, how do you, what's your, what are your thoughts on this particular Alice? There's so many ways to approach this one. It's so endlessly visually inventive, mm -hmm. I think, and inventive not just in the aesthetics, but in the interpretation of the material as well. Um, I mean, you know, in a film where there's so many hand-painted objects, as we can see there, but, you know, the, the sort of stop-motion creatures, it's also terrifying. Um, <laughs> the, 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 the rabbit is um, genuinely frightening, actually, <laughs> like, as an adult yes. watching this, yeah. yeah yes. um, and, and, I mean, the, the rabbit sort of gets punctured and bits of sawdust starts. It's like it's starts. a taxidermied yeah, rabbit, it's, right? Yeah, it's but, a taxidermied. But then it's stop-motion animated, so yeah. it's, it's... And like it's, it's kind of a weird that it's leaking sawdust and sort of stops every so often to get its watch out almost like a, as a ritual and dusts off the watch and sort of puts a bit of sawdust back in itself um, which is it's just so creepy um, but, but I think the thing for me in terms of style is that despite everything that we've just seen and everything that I've just said um, I actually think this is the most realistic Alice mm. in the sense that it sets its terms and really sticks to them nothing outside of kind of the film um, the film's dreamscape exists in the film and, and for that it's the one where most clearly it's suggested at the end spoilers I guess that it wasn't a dream mm. that actually there have been real ramifications of this adventure um, and I think that's really interesting to combine this kind of visual aesthetic with that I think quite realist approach mm. to some degree 
Mm. I mean, what I like about this one is that she's a narrator. Like, every mm. word spoken in it's this film story. is hers. And that's astonishing, because we don't get many stories or, or films where girls are the central protagonist, let alone that they get all the dialogue right, they lead the whole thing. So I think that's amazing. But in, in contrast with the fact that she's doing all the speaking, um, you know, quite often, when, when she reduces down, she becomes a doll, right? She's a literal doll that, that's animated. So I think we can sort of see that notion of where Alice is reduced to this kind of blank slate figure that, you know, we can actually even just sub in a, a doll for, for her um, here. So it, it kind of embodies that notion of her as this kind of movable blank figure that can kind of, we can take in any direction. But yet on the other hand, she's, she's the only voice we hear. So there's an odd dichotomy or something think about going that on because there. she she grows big but she's still in the doll and you yeah. you get that feeling that she's trapped in the mm. doll casing mm. and it's a really it's it's almost that that subjectivity of being trapped in a doll mm. you know of of being tra- trapped in this sort of forced identity of girlhood yeah it's there's so much going on in this film um, it's one of those movies i just i never it's always new it's mm. always new there's like a, a there's a jam jar or a jar with a pile of screws in it or something that I haven't seen before. <laughs> it's really, it's a real treasure, as is the 1966 television play that we're going to watch a quick clip of now. Thanks. <coughs> there was a time when meadow, grove and stream, the earth and every common sight, to me did seem apparelled in celestial light, the glory and the freshness of a dream. Dan and I were talking earlier, and I think that we're in agreement that that's our favourite yep. Alice. This is our favourite Alice. There's yep. a lot of Alices to choose from, but I think that this, for me, stands out just by a mile. Um, Michelle, you wrote the chapter on this in the book. Um, I, you know, I was quite. In, I knew that we'd be sort of stretching it for time by this point, which we are. But I don't. I'm unapologetic about playing that clip. I just think mm. it's extraordinary. Please tell yeah. us a little bit about this film. Okay, so it's, a, it's an odd one in that it was made for TV for the BBC, 
um, Jonathan Miller decided to shoot it in black and white and he wanted to make it be a more adult version. He's like, this is not necessarily a story for children. I think, you know, that there's a resonances to this for adults and explicitly wanted to address that. And the movie was going to be shown after 9 p.m. on television, which is, you know, the watershed mark when the kids are meant to go to bed, right? Uh, and so there was a bit of uproar, like this rating of this film, how dare you do this to childhood, right? It's like Ghostbusters all over again. Um, yeah, so Alice Liddell, who was the, the girl that Lewis Carroll told the story to, um, her granddaughter, or great-granddaughter, said, I can't have this film. This is going to tarnish my grandmother's name and put her in filth or whatever. But basically, he didn't mean adult in terms of sexual, but just the notion of no animal costumes. So there's no animal costumes in this film. The characters kind of represent those figures through you know, their mannerisms and the way they are. And the, the central kind of focus, I guess, is not on the nonsense and the humor and the playfulness, but on the Victorian world and how children had to inhabit this sphere with these very boring adults. So the Mad Hatter's Tea Party is just tedious. It's just being stuck there as a kid, which you would well know from being an adult kind of family functions as a child, and just going, what are they talking about? I don't actually literally care about this. So um, it, it kind of reoriented the, the battle with nonsense and comic and madness to the difference between the adult and child divide and, and using an adult audience to kind of think about this with the child figure of Alice. Dan, what strikes you? I mean, what really grabbed you about this? Oh, and Ravi Shankar did the soundtrack. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, there's a segue. We're, 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 in, we're in there, so you can take that. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I was just going to comment on the music. I mean, yeah. it's incredible. I mean, the cinematography is beautiful. For a made-for-TV, you know, 60s thing, this is well before the era of quality, capital Q, capital TV, um, where, you know, we expect things to look great because we've all got amazing, huge home cinema systems and we can see every image. This is, you know, 60s and the TV sets like this big, right? But this cinematography is still incredible. Um, but the music is amazing. Um, I mean, I think in, you know, in amongst there, there's almost certainly some Moog synths, as there was in the, um, the, the, the anti-drug uh, scene that we saw, um, which is so telling of, of the time of this, this kind of 60s pushing of the technology of music as well as um, cinema. Um, it's all sort of coming together really captivatingly. Aside from being one of my favourite Alice films, I think Anne-Marie Malick is one of my favourite Alices. <laughs> hmm. um, and the thing that really strikes me every time I revisit this, this is on YouTube, you can, you can watch it tonight. <laughs> there you go, my gift to you. Um, she's little. Yeah. She's not seven, but she was 13, I think, when she made it. And it's quite striking when you watch a lot of Alice's all at once, when you actually watch a little, a younger girl in the role. It's really a very different thing than watching yes. a 23-year-old pretending to be mm. this sort of infantilised, buxom weirdness. It's, it's a very different experience. <laughs> and she but, wasn't an actress, right? Like, she, she, she looks kind of bored throughout a lot of the film. She's, yeah. It's that internalised yeah. internalisation. <laughs> it's a really interesting performance. I was going to talk a little bit more about TV stuff, um, but I, I'm am conscious of time, but I do want to just check for my own sanity. In my in my research, I found that there was a 1987 Australian-Italian cartoon co-production with Mr. T and Phyllis Diller. Oh. <laughs> Can anybody validate this? Has anybody seen this? And if so, who was Mr. T? Because <laughs> I want Alice. Like, I want that. I want, yeah. that. I want that so bad. Mm. That's a zero. I, this is a myth. This is the <laughs> mind is boggling at the thought what? of which character Mr. T could be. Mr. But... T, <laughs> like why not? Let's go to Dr. Pepper. Beautiful Queen got thirsty. Jack, I'm part of the music. 
Captain Jack, knowing she was a figure, along with her clients, often had an ordinary diet drink. Diet cooler had this man shuffled, she said. Fortunately, a young girl had an ace up her sleeve. One of a kind, of course. <laughs> I only included that because I hate it so much. It just infuriates me, like smashing bottles. Ah, oh, I just hate Dr. Do you Pepper. know they did a whole bunch of them, though? They did a Little Red Riding Hood. No, one are as they well. infuriating? Is Where that... Kim, Kim Cattrall is roller skating through the woods as Little Red Riding Hood, and then the wolf comes Okay, up now you've sold me. He drinks the Dr. Pepper and he turns into a handsome guy, so, and they roller skate away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to talk about the commodification of Alice. Yeah. <laughs> Now, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated, um, yeah, I mean, just talking about television, I think we have the 1966 version, which is so far not, on the mm. extreme, not a commodity, but then we have this shift to Mr. T, why not? Culture is random. Um, and I guess, you know, Dr. Pepper and Tetley T and, you know, this recurring pop cultural iconography of Alice. And somewhere in the middle here, we have the enduring influence of Alice on music videos, um, mm. and which is sort of straddles art and, and the commercial, which I find really fascinating. Um, there's a whole bunch. I mentioned Tom Petty earlier, Tori Amos, Lindsay Sterling, uh, Birthday Massacre. There's a whole bunch. Really, the Tom Petty one, there's this interesting trend. There's a, a K-pop band called Boyfriend, who have a music yes. video called Bounce, which yeah. is really interesting because it turns the subjectivity around to a male perspective. So Alice is sort of this distant, sexy girl, but it's all about the Mad Hatter and his sort of... It's, mm. it's his story now, thank you. Um, <laughs> so interesting things happening in music video. I write on, um, in the book, I write on Marilyn Manson's unmade Alice in Wonderland film or Lewis Carroll film, Phantasmagoria, um, which he announced in 2007, uh, sorry, 2006. He then did the Eat Me, Drink Me album. It was all Alice all the time if you were Marilyn Manson. <laughs> never happened, he gave up. He said he went crazy, it was too hard. Um, I don't judge him for that. I don't, I don't mean it was, I mean, I couldn't do it. I, I don't want to give Marilyn a hard time. Um, but there is this fascination, I think, between, you know, with the world of music and the, the, the kind of creative opportunities, I guess, that music video in particular mm. afford. Tell me about Gwen Stefani. You guys love that as much as I do. <laughs> I actually do, yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, I mean, it just, it, it, it's such a natural fit in that, you know, discrete sort of, events that occur without necessarily having to include this overall sort of narrative thrust, which can sometimes be a bit awkward in a music video. And you can see uh, in the origins of the music video um, in a film like A Hard Day's Night, the Beatles film, which doesn't really have a narrative thrust. It's sort of a collection of moments, much in the same way as, as, as Alice in Wonderland is. You know, incredibly strong, immediately recognizable visual style. It's, it's a wonder that every video clip is not Alice. Yeah. <laughs> to some degree. Yeah, I, I guess it's there's very few visual symbols that we all recognise, right? Like they, they say, like, the Bible and Shakespeare are probably the only texts more read than, than Alice. So we all know what the Red Queen looks like. We all know what the pack of cards means. We all know what the Mad Hatter is. And I just don't think there's a visual language that's as universal, certainly across Japanese culture and, and, and um, you know, Western culture as, as Alice. Like, the, what other visual symbols are as widely known across generations. Like, even seeing this exhibition here, you can have little kids, you can have people, and we all know what these things mean. So, yeah, I think it's kind of quite natural because we all get those references. We'll touch on Japanese culture briefly in a moment. I want to quickly, just on this um, idea of um, 
the commodification, but also creativity. I want to play Harmony Kareem's ad for Christian Dior's, um, uh, what's the perfume called? Addict perfume. Can we just play that? Thanks. we have a perfect example of that shorthand and the shorthand is so reduced. I mean, there's so little information there that we're dealing with an Alice narrative, but we all know straight away that we're dealing, you know, we see the mirror, we see the big chair. Great. We're going into a world of fantasy. Like it's, it's on. Um, (laughs) And we have, again, this perfect, perfect combination, I think of the commodification, selling of the perfume. We all want to smell like the Dior ad. Um, (laughs) Lovely, lovely. Um, and this, we have, to, we have a wonderful chapter on this in, in the book as well, which I was going to play a clip of, but we're very low on time, so I'm going to miss the clip, but it is on YouTube and it's beautiful. This is the Takashi Murakami film um, with Louis Vuitton um, that he made, which is a kind of network savvy Alice. So just about super flat and also the Dior ad, um, I thought... I would just I know that you guys have seen both of them. Um, what particularly strikes you about either or both of those? I mean, well, with um, the Dior ad, I mean, again, like the music is like, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's Diane Wood, isn't yeah, it? it? Is yeah, Wood, the yeah. sort of South African band that nobody knows if they're a parody or not. <laughs> um, uh, and again, like taking that, <laughs> that music into the realm of... Um, commodity I think you know that's the the sound of shopping or clubbing yeah (laughs) um and kind of you know adds that together um which is so different from super flat as well they're really extreme I mean they're both doing the same thing ultimately and that they're selling these kind of you know high Mm. high you know high price luxury brands Mm. but they're very different artifacts Mm. yeah I mean I think all of these fashion ads like there's so many um there there are like way more than these um in terms of fashion drawing on this and I think it's because that kind of message of consumption that the the you you are now is not quite good enough and like maybe you need to be this other you like the notion of going through the looking glass you know becoming this other person, this reversal of you, this fantasized ideal self, like that imagery suits 
suits so perfectly. Um, you know, it's an easy shorthand for, you know, becoming something else. Well, the narratives of transformation, yeah. um, which I guess, as you were saying before, that they're no longer internal transformations. They're mm. external, perfumed, tra handbag yeah. transformations. And because there's this slight sort of edginess, like, you know, conveyed with, with the fantasiness, it's like, you know, you can see this in this high-end fashion, that, yep. that it brings with it this meaning that, that this is not conventional fashion. You know, this is at your extreme because you're so edgy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we are going to have a very quick look. Um, I really want to touch on um, a video game. Let's have a quick look at American McGee's Alice. <laughs> I mean, look. What... Explain your people to me. Yeah. So my people. I mean, look. American McGee is, um, by all accounts, a weird dude. Actually. Um, and, no kidding. Yeah. <laughs> and this game um, from 2000 was actually like a huge sort of cult hit, um, and had a sequel like 11, 12 years later. 11 years later, um, that was also reasonably successful. But to me, what's interesting about these games is not the kind of narrative which we just saw then, which I think is not super convincingly pulled off in the, this darkening of Alice, but rather the spaces um, that are like these fully realised dreamscapes which you can, you know, quite convincingly explore and inhabit in these games, which is, to me, the perfect fit for Alice. And then it's about going somewhere else, becoming somebody else, seeing impossible things, and that's what a video game can allow. But on the topic of games, I mean, I think beyond the direct adaptations that you get with American McGee's Alice is uh, the broader influence that it's had, uh, particularly on Mario. I mean, Mario eats a mushroom to get big. 
Um, and, you know, Shigeru Miyamoto, who made Mario, who created Mario, um, has admitted, you know, the sort of influence in particular that, that Alice had on his work. Am I an idiot? I never clicked yeah. on that before. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Whoa, yeah. dude. Uh, absolutely. I mean, like, yeah. And, you know, there's, like, turtles that you defeat. And, like, the, the, whole, the whole thing is, like, this kind of, you know, if only Alice was an Italian plumber. <laughs> <laughs> How many times have I asked yeah. that? We're going to wrap up. Um, yeah. And um, we've got some roaming mics. We probably have... I've really blown the budget time-wise on this. We probably have time for one or two questions. So if, um, we're, we're live streaming this. So if anybody has a question, just raise your hand and one of our superstar microphone attendants will go to you. But as we're doing that, I thought I'd just show this picture of Tim Burton and Fat Bob. Um, hey, Robert, hey, what's your language? <laughs> festively plump Bob does this uh, song on the um, first Burton or the, the Burton soundtrack of Alice and ask you guys, what's next? What's in the future for Alice? Gee, I don't know. I mean, we've gone down this dark rabbit hole, haven't we? You know, like Tim Burton's Alice and, and a lot of the games are drawing on mm. this dark kind of figure. I mean, a lot of where I see the interest is in um, what other cultures are doing with Alice. So my student, Elodie, who's doing a PhD on Alice in Japan, uh, it's amazing to see the influence there and what it means in terms of dress. You know, people who dress like Alice. Um, you know, this, these kind of different ways of reshaping her in a whole new cultural, cultural context. So... Um, I, I think that's where the interesting stuff is really lying. Of course, different cultures, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. yeah, I mean, I think there's got to be some kind of, like... Um, I mean, w with, with the Tim Burton analysis, we hit this kind of recapitulation of, like, this is what it is in a kind of primary central way in that Tim Burton doing an Alice movie is kind of like when Tarantino finally did a Western. It's sort of like returning to the thing that they were kind of always circling for a long time um, and probably has the same problems for both. But, um, you know, I think taking Alice in a different direction and, a, you know, adapting to the times is, is what we're going to see. All right, have we got any questions? Over here? Hi. Yeah, um, you kind of picked up on it there, but given how often girlhood is portrayed as about innocence and purity, why are so many of these films so creepy? <laughs> In a way, I suspect you might have answered your own question because they just get it wrong. <laughs> Um, and is it also that she has to maintain that in the face yeah. of all of it? Like she, her pinafore stays clean, except in American McGee's Alice, where there's quite a bit of blood on it. But, <laughs> but you know, maybe, maybe it's that, detest that. That volatility maybe. between being subject and being object. And mm. I think, my, I just say that from my own experience of watching Alice, that when she goes from being the centre... Uh, you know, the kind of subject that, that I experienced the film through to being the thing that I should look at in a pervy way, mm. a la Laura Mulvey, like that, that, that volatility is creepy mm. to me. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I also think it's a great horror story aside from mm. anything else. I think there's great horror elements in the film. Yeah. But. I mean, probably they're intrinsically linked as well, like creepiness and pureness are kind of, you know, how pure can you really be without creepiness to contrast it with? Mm, the or secret to play off of, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah. 
the Mad Hatter's always been really creepy. Because I think you see the dark come in a lot more in Through the Looking Glass, and that's what yep. Burton kind of brings in a lot more, uh, you know, in, the, in Alice, his re-sequel or whatever he, he called it, in that, you know, you, you do have more of a, a dark sense yep. of a battle and the, the Jabberwocky, which is, you know, the, the, the poem, um, you know, that has that dark focus. So it kind of it always was there, but I think maybe we look at the, the early attempts, saw it more as a children's film and that we kind of don't want to emphasise those elements, but maybe we've just allowed some of that stuff to breathe yep. in some of the more recent... Anyone else? Any other questions? <laughs> Sorry, You're doing that thing I'm now. That thing. <laughs> well, thank you all for joining us tonight. Thank you to Dr. Michelle J. Smith and Dr. Dan Golding. Um, you have been at our panel, Electric Girlhood's Alice's Past and Future. We would like to thank ACME for hosting us, particularly our producer, the wonderful and wonderful Anna Svedberg, and to the uh, Wonderland curators, Jess Bram and her team, and to everybody who was a part of making this magic happen. Thank you particularly to Emma McRae for her work as my co-editor on this amazing book from Tamsin Hudson that you can all buy in the shop <laughs> or online. These guys write in it, I write in it. It's great. This has been an infomercial. Thank you for joining <laughs> us. <laughs> Thanks, Alex. You've been listening to an Acme Conversations podcast. Visit acme.net.au for information about upcoming events, exhibitions and film screenings. 